0: So reading tonight is from Numbers thirteen. That's page one hundred and forty nine in the Church Bibles and two hundred and six in the large print Bible. And we're starting at verse one. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then from verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, "'If only we had died in Egypt, or in this wilderness.' Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell to face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them." Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them an oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now.
1: Thanks very much, Yvonne. That was a long reading. Well done. Good to see you all tonight. Let's come to the Lord in prayer as we come to this passage together. Father God, we do come to you this evening as those who are by nature rebellious, those who find it hard to trust in you and all your goodness and your power, those who find it hard to follow your commands. And so we do pray this evening that uh, you would rebuke us as necessary, but also encourage us, Lord, encourage us with your great mercy that you have shown towards us, and encourage us with us with the power that you are able to change people's lives as you show mercy to them. So speak to us tonight, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in recent weeks we have read and um, heard about a government that is in so-called disarray with Tory rebels consistently voting against the government's proposals on Brexit. Um, The government's chief whip has been quoted as saying, the current cabinet has shown the worst example of ill-discipline in the history of British politics and accused senior ministers of sitting around the uh, cabinet table trying to destabilize the Prime Minister. It's not just Theresa May who's faced rebellion. Jeremy Corbyn has also been told to back a public vote or face mass revolt by his party. A rebellion against one's uh, political party is one thing, and we continue to pray that a way forward will be found but rebelling against God is far more serious. Last week in the passage we looked at, we read about the danger of grumbling. Well, this week uh, grumbling reappears, um, but it leads this time to rebellious action. And that has terrible consequences, as we, as we shall see. We are all, by nature, rebels against God. But thanks to his mercy, we have become his friends. But we still live in a world um, of rebellious people. And if they continue in their rebellion, they will face terrible consequences for their actions. So if we have been saved already, how are we going to be able to save them? Maybe there is something we can learn from this story, from Moses, from Aaron, from Joshua and Caleb. Or just to put this in context, the people of Israel have arrived at the edge of, uh, of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, it's taken them two years to get there via uh, Mount Sinai. And um, it's at this point that in verse 1 of chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. And note that word "they're giving. That God is a generous God. Uh, this is a gift of God to the people of Israel. For they've done nothing to earn. This is the culmination of their rescue from Egypt. And they're about to take ownership of their prize. Exploring the land is really about confirming that it is as good as God has promised. The survey instructions that Moses gives them in verse 17 are quite precise. Have a look down. It says, um, Go up through the Negev, and on into the hill country see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak few or many what kind of land do they live in is it good or bad what kind of towns do they live in are they unwalled or fortified how is the soil is it fertile or poor are there trees in it or not do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land it was a season for the first ripe grapes and so they went And this is the route they would have uh, taken all the way through the promised land. After 40 days, they do come back with some grapes. Um, The grapes are proof that this is a good land that God is giving them. Have a taste, if you don't believe it. It's a bit like going to the Tame Food Festival, isn't it, and uh, seeing some great slabs of, uh, of cheese and we're giving a little morsel to convince you that it really is good. God is a generous God. We don't know why God gives some people more uh, physical, material blessings than others. This church has incredible material blessings um, that have come from the Lord, and we'll come on to our response to that shortly. There are others in different parts of the world who have relatively little. And sometimes it helps to go and visit places uh, and people who have very little just to appreciate just how much that we do have. But if we're Christians, wherever we are, the greatest gift that we've all received, of course, is the gift of Jesus Christ. We're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and the spiritual blessings from believing in him are our salvation, our eternal life our adoption as children of God the gift of the Holy Spirit our Father in Heaven has already given us so much and he wants to give us more if we ask him he's a generous God now coming back to Numbers the people of Israel have been promised an amazing gift of their own land so how do they respond to that? What was the report the, the spies gave when they came back? Have a look at verse um, 27 here. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. They've confirmed that it is as God said it would be, as he promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. But, there's a but, isn't there? But, the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live in near the sea along the Jordan. Well, Caleb uh, can see where this is going, and so he steps in, and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. In God's strength, that is. But we have another but, don't we? But the men who gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said... The land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anna, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. God has made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he will bring his people into the promised land. He's rescued them from slavery to the the most powerful nation on the earth at that time. And in that process, he's made some incredible uh, signs. He's done some incredible miracles, or the plagues, or the death of the firstborn, even part of the sea to enable them to escape. Since then, he's provided them with food every day. And just as he's about to give them the promised land, they are afraid. Note in the report, they say, we went into the land to which you sent us. It's almost resentful, isn't it? Um, Normally the land is spoken of as the land which God promised to give them. But now it's become something negative. So why don't they trust God? Well, because they can see the human obstacles. And they've become huge in their eyes. And they don't believe God is able to keep his promises. And that is a form of rebellion against God. Rebellion is failing to trust in God's promises. How often do we become afraid of human obstacles? How often do we lose confidence in God's power and his promises? Whatever we do to respond to the way that God has blessed us with the growth in this church, there will be obstacles. If you if you start a new service, um, you face obstacles. When you plant a church, you face obstacles. You may recall when we did the building project, we faced obstacles. But this building demonstrates God's great generosity towards us. It took a lot of faith and sacrifice to get this building completed. But it will take a lot more to do something different. Because many people now will be thinking, "It's actually quite nice now, isn't it? It's comfortable. Everything's new, it works well. Um, my children have decent facilities. Uh, why do we need to do anything else? I'm sure we would all say we want the church to grow. But when it comes to, it, I imagine there'll be lots of excuses for not making the necessary changes in order to continue to grow. Either because deep down we we don't trust that God will bless the work, or maybe we're just afraid of what we might lose. You may have heard the analogy of churches being described as cruise liners or lifeboats. Cruise liners are those that exist to give people on board pleasure. Lifeboats are those who exist to save those who are drowning all around them. And if we as a church are truly a lifeboat, as we should be, then we're all in this together. Um, And we'll all need to shove over in the boat to allow others in. We can't afford to be protective about our part of the building, our, our time in the week, the way we have always done things. We need to go forward in God's strength and following his plans for us. But what about an individual level? What are the things that we still find difficult to trust God with? Maybe times of, of illness or prolonged crisis, not knowing how long we will ever get through them. It may be despairing of those we've been praying for for so long, who have still not come to faith. Well, Let's remember that with God, all things are possible. To trust in God for the future, we have to look back to the past to see how he's answered our prayers in the past. Because the moment we forget to give thanks for the, God, the moment we forget to give thanks to God for the past, that'll mean the moment we lose confidence in God for the future. The moment we start to look at just the human obstacles, then we will lose confidence in God's power. And if we're not careful, that can then lead to disobedience, as we see in the story. Because rebellion is also going against God's commands. Have a look at um, chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, "If only we had died in Egypt! or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword?" Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? We talked last week about grumbling, didn't we? Uh, The Israelites' grumbling reveals a lack of trust in God's goodness and his promises. They would rather have stayed in Egypt. Their current plight has blinded them to, to just how bad that was back then. And they even believe that God would let them enter the promised land only then to be killed. They've lost confidence not only in God's power, they've lost confidence in God's character. And it's easy for us to read this, isn't it? Knowing uh, the rest of the story and think, what were these people moaning about? Why didn't they get it? But grumbling, moaning, criticizing others, it's probably... One of the most commonplace sins in the church today. We do it without realising it, don't we? We we excuse it as the need to to get it off my chest, um, or we turn it into a joke to somehow make it more acceptable. And it doesn't help that it's part of the uh, the British culture to be cynical, to to grumble. And as Nathan said last week, it should be uh, be the eighth deadly sin. Well, the tendency to grumble doesn't depend on how much or how little we have, it's often more commonplace amongst those who have a lot. Ultimately, what grumbling displays is a lack of appreciation for what God has given us and for what he's done for us. It means that we don't really believe that God is a generous God. What do we do if we find ourselves in that situation where our relationship with God has become dry, we've lost a joy, we've lost a peace, in our hearts. But what won't help is simply resolving to try harder not to grumble and trying harder to be joyful. We have to address the sinful attitude in our hearts which will then lead to outward a change in our behavior. We first need to acknowledge our sin. We need to pray the same prayer as David in Psalm 51. This is what David prayed after he acknowledged his own sin, he said, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We need to spend time getting to know God better, reflecting on all that he's done for us, and so we can replace that grumbling with something positive. Because had the Israelites stopped at this moment when they were grumbling and reflected on all that God had done, they could have moved on. But what happens? Well, they allowed those negative thoughts to turn to disobedience. The thought entered their mind about returning to Egypt. And before you know it, have a look at verse 4. They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Not only are they now not trusting God, they are disobeying him. They are rejecting his appointed leader. And Moses and Aaron, they know just how serious this is. And so we're told they fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly. It's an act of contrition before our holy God. Joshua, Moses' assistant, and Caleb show their allegiance as they tear their clothes in mourning. And in one last desperate plea to the Israelites, Joshua says this. He says, The land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel Against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land. Because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Doesn't matter how big they look. If the Lord is on our side. We will overcome them. Do not be afraid of them. Well what happens? The whole assembly talked about stoning them. And so, at this moment, God steps in. And we're told in verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord, and the Lord, so have a look in verse 11, said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the things that I performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Well, Moses responds by appealing to God. He does that on behalf of the people and he does it in the same way if you remember the story of Mount Sinai and the incident of the golden calf. He does the same thing here. He appeals not on the basis of trying to defend the actions of the Israelites, which can't be defended, but by appealing to God's glory. And he says to to God, if the Egyptians hear about this, they won't believe that you were able to bring the people into the land as you promised. And so he says at the end of his speech, there in verse 17, now may the Lord's strength be displayed. In other words, may the Lord be glorified just as you have declared The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. What he's basically saying is, God, show your strength by forgiving these people. Show the glory of your mercy. Show your love. Show your compassion. When we pray for our friends who are not, yeah, Christians, there are lots of ways in which we can pray for them. But why not appeal to God's glory? That he shows In his mercy. The Lord replies to Moses in verse 20. I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless. As surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. Not one of those who saw my glory. And the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness. But who disobeyed me. And tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath." to their ancestors. No one who's treated me with contempt will ever see it. He doesn't punish them in the way they deserve to be punished. But there is a cost to this forgiveness. Those who rebelled against him will die in the wilderness. They won't enter the promised land. Their children will enter, but they won't. God will show himself to be faithful to his ultimate promise to bring his people into the land. The part of God's glory is his justice. And that is why Jesus died on the cross in our place. Justice had to be done for the sins of the world. And as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, we received God's mercy. And we are now treated as if we had never sinned. And we're called to live lives that that honor God. And the sad thing about this episode, though, is that even having received that judgment, even having been shown mercy, the people still refuse to accept it. Have a look on in verse 39. We're told there, when Moses reported this all to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning they set out for the highest point in the hill country saying, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. They accept they've sinned, but instead of accepting his mercy, they still try and take things into their own hands. They still try and somehow make it right. And so Moses says to them in verse 41, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up. Because the Lord is not with you, you will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. This is a clear command from God's leader. It's a command from God. But they refuse to accept it. They think they somehow know best. And so in verse 44... Nevertheless, in their presumption or their, their arrogance, they went up towards the highest point in the hill country. Though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them all the way down to Homer. We can't make our sins right, but we have a God who is willing to forgive us. And having been forgiven, we need to to obey him. We need to follow him. And if we do so, we will know his presence. We will know his strength with us. If we disobey because we think we somehow know best, then he will withdraw his blessing. God's glory is made perfect in our weakness. Well, as we finish, our God is a powerful God. He's a faithful God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And so let's not be put off by the human obstacles in our lives, whatever our challenge may be. In the life of the church, as we seek to do His will as a church, let's also not take things into our own hands. But let's seek to walk in step with the Spirit. Let's live lives of obedience. Let's trust in God's strength in all things. And let's pray that the Lord's strength and glory will be displayed in his mercy. Let's read those words again at the top then, verse 17. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have, just as you have declared the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion.
0: Amen.